episode 47, Quadruple Constitutions. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a January 30th, 2008 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Constitutions. Every state had one. Kansas had four. Curator Blair Tarr tells us what happened when free staters, abolitionists, and pro-slavery groups squared off to draft the state's constitution. Three angry mobs produced four separate documents, but only one came back with the seal of approval. Did divisive politics cloud their judgment, or were early Kansans just poor spellers with messy handwriting? Later, we'll play another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White, Election 2008. This week, we connect White, the respected Kansas newspaper editor, to Mitt Romney, former governor of Massachusetts and current Democratic presidential candidate. From Mitt to Will in Six Degrees. But first, quadruple constitutions. Good morning, Blair. Good morning. Um, in honor of Kansas Day, which was yesterday, uh, we're going to talk about the Kansas Constitution, or Constitutions. Cause, oh, boy. Because there was four of them. And uh, I know it doesn't sound exciting, but they are really interesting. There was four of them, and they weren't exactly rough drafts, right? No. Each um, one of them were intended to be a possible state constitution. Right. Um, and if you want to see images of these, uh, th- at least three of the constitutions, you can actually go to our, the Cool Things section of our website and click on them. Blair, why does a state even need a constitution? Um, doesn't the federal constitution really cover most of the important stuff? Actually, I think it's partly because of the federal constitution that you do need a state constitution. you got to remember, and here's where the constitutional scholars will tell me if I'm wrong, I'll call it and say that bubblehead's done it again. And I don't know how many a novel experience, but <laughs> I don't know how many constitutional scholars listen to our. Yeah, podcast. well, it would be a supremely interesting <laughs> to find out. But the Tenth Amendment, the last of the Bill of Rights, the Federal Constitution, guarantees that anything not covered in the Constitution are powers guaranteed to the states, and so it's up to the states to spell out those responsibilities on their own. And also, I suspect explains what rights are go to the local governments within the state. So that's that's part of it. It's just a good organizational document like any organization. The Constitution helps out quite a bit in explaining what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. You have something here about the Kansas-Nebraska Act required it. Well, I think that's a requirement for any, any state that's – or a territory that wants to be admitted as a state into the union. They've got to have a constitution that can be approved by Congress. What are the names of the four constitutions of Kansas, and uh, why are they named after cities? Well, there's Topeka, Lecompton, Leavenworth, and Wyandotte. That's where they met, of course, for the constitutional conventions. These were the people that got together. These are the people that got together. They were were, delegates designated either by the people or by the the territorial legislature. So these were the Jeffersons and the Madisons. I guess that's one way you could put it, yes. (laughs) 
some of them I'm not sure they uh, live up to that reputation, but that's all right. <laughs> so um, there's no Fort Riley kind of constitution. Constitutional convention. Yeah, that's what's going to ask. How yeah. come there's not a Fort Riley, a Fort Riley Constitution, or a Kansas City Constitution? Well, because can't... they met. I mean, the they the territorial legislature met at these places, right? They did, but the conventions did not. Yeah, if there had been convention and visitors bureaus in those days, there probably would have been somebody clamoring that said, "Hey, we need a constitutional convention too. It'll be good for our economic base." <laughs> Okay, well, I'd like to go through each of these constitutions and, and have you tell us a little bit about them, and particularly why, why they failed. But first, this is going to be a monumental task, I guess, <laughs> but could you sort of just set up the scene in Kansas before the first constitution is drafted? Uh, there is a lot of confusion going on because there are actually two legislatures at first. There is one that is recognized by the federal government, which is a pro-slave legislature. And there is another one that's formed here in Topeka, which is a free state legislature, which meets, tries to pass laws, but it really doesn't have the standing of approval from Congress. And they're the ones that draft the Topeka Constitution in 1855, Yes, correct? they at least set up the convention here in Topeka that uh, creates that uh, constitution. So let me just clarify, because this really kind of blows my mind. There's two legislatures, There's two legislatures at one time. yes. And can one clearly be defined as the official? And One can be, because the pro-slavery legislature does have the sanction of the United States Congress. But isn't there a little bit of question about the validity? Oh, there is questions when it comes to the voting, yes, because uh, Missourians, of course, poured over the border and voted and then went back home uh, to Missouri. But uh, valid or not, that's still the one that's officially recognized. And the free staters are not recognized by Congress, so they're sort of acting in an extra-legal uh, manner. The free staters, they draft the Topeka Constitution. Yes. They're not a sanctioned body. But, I mean, it's voted on in the federal government, right? No, it's not. No. Actually, it is voted on by free staters in Kansas. Uh, but it never, in fact, it never stood a snowball's chance, actually, as they say, uh, <laughs> because it was not recognized by Congress. There was no need for Congress to even bring it up. So what was the, what was the, biggest, what was the biggest issue with the Topeka Constitution? One of the things that really stands out is, is that not only did they not want slavery in the territory, they didn't even want free blacks here. They wanted no African-Americans within the borders of Kansas. Really? And that makes it very controversial, even then, uh, not to have that kind of standing, even though you would think some of these people would be very abolition-minded. It just goes to show you that being free state doesn't necessarily mean that you're pro-black. Okay, so after Topeka, then then comes, and that's, that's, that's turned down, never really goes anywhere, so then they start work on another one. <clears throat> right. And that's called the Lecompton Constitution. Yes. And that's, um, that's drafted in 1857. So who wrote this one? This is a pro-slavery conven convention. Uh, and it gets very difficult at this point because it gets voted on three times. The issue is always whether or not you approve it with slavery or without slavery, but it doesn't allow for any free blacks in the state. And it's even tricky in the way they word it, with slavery or without slavery, when you vote on it the first time. Uh, maybe it's the second time. This is where I get confused, too. Uh, 
because even without slavery, it meant that those slaves that were already in the territory could remain and would still be slaves, even though it says without slavery. Complicated enough for you? <laughs> um, so why did, why did this particular one fail? Uh, the changing times really uh, are what caused it to fail probably more than anything. Uh, the first time that it's voted on, uh, it, it wins overwhelming approval, but the free staters are also boycotting it. And that gives enough doubt in Congress that they never really approve it. In fact, they call for another election. That doesn't work either. Uh, they don't have any luck in uh, getting a definitive answer there without the second election. So they try it a third time. Well, by this time, there have been enough free staters that have moved into Kansas that even the territorial legislature has changed hands. So did the Lecompton Constitution, it never left Kansas? It never made it, made it to the federal government? It, it did get discussion in Congress to some point, but it never really got the vote in Congress, even though even President Buchanan at the time tried to urge acceptance of the Lecompton Constitution. So he was well aware of this little con- this this little state right in a constitution. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, is there any interesting uh, constitutional characters uh, present at this convention or involved in drafting this constitution? John Calhoun is sort of interesting, although I'm not sure it's so much because of his stance, but from where he's from. If I'm remembering correctly, Calhoun is from Illinois. He is the surveyor for the territory, but he is in charge of the convention, and he does take this pro-slavery view. What's interesting is is that back in Illinois, where he was a surveyor, he once hired a man uh, to work under him who also did a little survey work and was quite good at it. His name was Lincoln. So Calhoun, who's pro-slavery, <laughs> knew and hired Lincoln. He hired Lincoln, yes. <laughs> interesting. And now we move on to the Leavenworth Constitution, which uh, was drafted in 1858. And if, I, if I'm correct, this is uh, sort of the most liberal of all the constitutions, right? Yes, it is. Um, uh, who wrote this one? This is definitely one that has the approval of the territorial free staters that have control of the legislature. So it has some chance of passing, sort of, because, as you said, it was a very liberal constitution. It had no problem with the concept of having free blacks living in the state. There would be no slavery. It even gave some property rights to women, which was an advanced thought at that time. And perhaps just those things alone sort of doomed it, because once it got to Congress, and particularly the Senate, which was fairly evenly divided between pro-slave and free state, it wasn't going to pass. Because it was too liberal. It was too liberal. Do you think this, I mean, this doesn't, this sounds like it was more than just the liberal of the four constitutions. This sounds like a document that was probably pretty pioneering in any sort of government planning. It probably was, and it was probably that we did have people at that convention that were really charged with more liberal thought than some. And John Ritchie is the character that stands out here from here from Topeka. Ritchie is an abolitionist, but unlike a lot of free state men and abolitionists, he really does believe that blacks can exist as equals of white men. And he even believes to, that women can do that as well. So he's way ahead of the curve for his time. And then finally, we reach the Wyandotte Constitution, which is, <laughs> the, which is the official constitution of the state of Kansas. That was, that was uh, drafted in 1859. 
So who finally who finally got the say, Blair? Who wrote this one? These are free staters, but by the same token, they're also people that are probably reasonable people. They're people that are going to be involved in Kansas, like John Martin, who becomes governor about 20 years later. He's only 19, I think, when he's the secretary of this convention. Jeez. Uh, 19 and he was in charge of writing a state. He, well, he, he was the secretary, meaning oh, okay. that he was taking the notes and would be the one who would put all this together in formal writing. General James Blunt, not yet a general, of course, is also in this. And while well, he sort of has gets more of a, a reputation for being somewhat extreme later on, he's still a relatively calm person that people don't know a lot about at this time. And under this, they're able to act and think and craft something that will probably stand up against a congressional challenge. Although there's a little bit of liberalness in there, too. It doesn't give the vote to blacks. It does allow blacks into the state anyway, free blacks in. And it allows women to vote on school board elections. Is not everything, but it's a start because they think women have a role in raising children, and that includes their education. So that's a rather liberal thought uh, for 1859. It does, of course, have a little trouble, too, getting past Congress because it's still a matter of Senate, the Senate voting on it, and it is still close there as far as the difference between free state and slave state senators. But there's some events that take place that uh, facilitate that. (laughs) Yes, as soon as Lincoln is elected, that starts the secession of the Confederate states, what will be the Confederate states. And as those states drop out of Congress, there's no longer any great opposition in the Senate. (laughs) And so it gets voted in fairly easily. So, in a way, our statehood was thanks to the South's succession. Yes, eventually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, did, um, did other states experience a similar situation with multiple constitutions? Did Nebraska go through the same? I don't think so. Nebraska didn't have the same politically charged situation. In fact, they didn't, really, they didn't become a state till 1867. But then there wasn't anyone clamoring right away for them to become a state like Kansas was. Uh, I don't know of any other state that had to go through that many constitutions just to get started. I know there are states that have changed their constitutions out of whole cloth, not just amending. Have you actually seen these constitutions? Uh, And if you have, what do they look like? It's been a while. We did have them out on exhibit a few years ago for the territorial Kansas uh, sesquicentennial. Wyandotte Constitution, we have a sheet of it out in the gallery. Actually, it's on fairly large paper, lined paper. Uh, I forget how many pages it is exactly, but it looks like it could have been done on an oversized tablet, actually. So the the, the constitutions are in the collection here. They are in the collection, except for, of course, the Topeka one, which we don't know what happened to it. Uh, The Compton Constitution is on parchment, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly. It's been a while since they're kept in the inner sanctum of the library archives, and we don't have access to that. Uh, in the museum division. Uh, and the other one, the Lecompton, it's on a scroll, I think, as I recall. It's the Lecompton up, or the Leavenworth? Or the Leavenworth, rather. Yeah, Leavenworth. Um, so you said three of the um, constitutions are in the collection. Yes. And the Topeka Constitution has never surfaced? 
I don't think so. I was trying to remember because there is some document that's at Yale University, but the more I think about it, I think it's actually the city charter for Topeka. At Yale University? At Yale, yeah. One of the founders sent it back east. <laughs> so is do you think it's possible that the Topeka Constitution, the first attempt, could be floating around out there somewhere? I, I think that's always possible. It, could, it wasn't unusual, really, for uh, since there were so many people from the northeast that came out here that some of them went back, some of them sent their papers back, and that's why the Topeka City Charter is at Yale. So it's, I suppose it is possible that it's out there somewhere. Okay, my final question, Blair. Um, if you could rewrite, or should I say, if you could draft a new constitution today, knowing how the Kansas Constitution name game works, that uh, constitution's name for whatever city you write it in, uh, in which Kansas town would you hold a constitutional convention? For example... I would hold mine in Kismet, Kansas. That way, the Constitution would be the Kismet Constitution. Constitution. And it sounds like it's meant to be. Yes. Okay. Or I would also hold my convention in Cuba, Kansas. Then it would be the Cuba Constitution, which I think could just get, some, just get a lot of PR. So you would also prove of Moscow and Havana, too. That yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moscow, Moscow, Kansas Convention, sure. Well, I did have to give this one some thought, and I came up with five. I'll only really describe two of them. Two of them that I really thought of off the top of my head without looking at the state roadmap, and three that I... <laughs> I saw you in there yeah. doing that. The three that I got off the roadmap, I thought I could probably get a cheap political joke out of some of these, like agenda in Republic County. So or, the agenda constitution? Or the constitutional agenda. I'm not sure which one. <laughs> 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 or... Climax, the in the climax <laughs> in Greenwood County. We could come to a constitutional climax on this one, uh, and because I don't know, just because there's the town of Gas in Allen County, which somehow that just seems politicians and gas just seem to go naturally together. True. Okay. And I can get a plug-in from one of our one of our historic sites too for this and. Uh, Cottonwood Ranch is there, and that's presided over, of course, by the world-famous Don Rollison. Be happy to see you if you come out there. But that, of course, is in the town of Studley in Sheridan County. Wouldn't it be a lot more fun if we were talking about a Studley constitution? <laughs> Man, that would be really cool. We've got, we would the studliest yes. <laughs> Studley constitution. Okay, Blair, well, thanks for telling us, uh, uh, attempting to explain the complexity of the four Kansas constitutions. Oh, you're quite welcome. <laughs> Six Degrees of William Alawite, Election 2008. Uh, joining me today is Curator Blair Tarr. Hey! And Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. This week, we are connecting William Alawite, the Pulitzer Prize winning Kansas native, to Willard Mitt Romney, a corporate executive and former, former governor of Massachusetts. Nikayla, I believe you have a solution from Mitt to Will. I sure do. In 1994, Mitt Romney ran against and lost to Teddy Kennedy for the U.S. Senate seat for Massachusetts. He ran against Teddy Kennedy? Yeah. Who he does ran, that? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, 
someone with political suicide on the brain. I don't know. Um, Teddy, as we know, is the son of Joseph P. Kennedy Sr. Joseph served in several positions um, to which FDR appointed him, including chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the Maritime Commission, and as ambassador to Britain. FDR and William busy guy. he was very busy yeah <laughs> FDR and William Allen White exchanged letters in the 1930s including my favorite in 1938 where William Allen White advised FDR to get his annual prostate exam <laughs> 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 He told the president he was entering quote the prostate zone <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, White, he's he's always pragmatic. Yeah, in the same letter, he sent um, FDR a photograph that he particularly liked of the president and asked him to autograph it. <laughs> <laughs> it was a newspaper editor. It was like paparazzi. Yeah, it's pretty funny. You gotta love William Allen White. Well, that's it? That's it. Mitt to Teddy to Joseph to FDR to William Allen White. Okay. Four right, degrees. He hit all the biggies there. Yeah. That's pretty good. <laughs> the quadfecta. So, Okay, so that's four degrees. Blair, where does that put Mitt on the William Allen White scale of electability? Okay, well, it looks like it puts him in a tie with Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and McCain and uh, good old Rudy Giuliani. Uh, but if we're, we've still got a couple at five, like Johnny Edwards and Ron Paul, the ever-popular Ron Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, uh, this whole system is kind of taking care of itself, and we're uh, losing a lot of them. Yeah. We're dropping like flies. There's a lot of losers on this list here, I see. So we got to figure out a way to break the tie eventually. Yes, we're working on that. We're thinking there's one candidate. Well, he's not really a candidate anymore. Sam Brownback. He's a hometown, yeah. hometown favorite here. Um, we may have to use him as a sort of tiebreaker, six degrees of Sam Brownback. And if not him, maybe Bob Dole, because all these people seem to know Bob Dole. Yeah, so. yeah. So don't worry, listening public. We're working yeah. on a plan to break up that four-way tie of four degrees. Have no fear. We'll tell you who to vote for. <laughs> okay. Um, now we're going to enter sort of the next. Oh, wait. First, Blair, you want to issue the challenge for next episode? Why, of course. We still have one more loser, I mean presidential candidate, to <laughs> offer a challenge to. The next challenge is to connect William Allen White to Mike Gravel. Everybody like. say who, yes, everybody. <laughs> who? <laughs> this descendant of French Canadians, eh, is a former senator of Alaska and current Democratic presidential candidate, at least of today. <laughs> and it's Gravel, not Gravel? I think it's Gravel. <laughs> <laughs> Although he might be graveling for votes. But I'm, but. Okay, um, now we'll move on to the second phase of Six Degrees of William Alloway. Um, which is based on a few weeks ago, a listener wanted to know if we could connect ourselves to William Allen White. And then, Kayla, I believe you have a story that relates to this issue. That's right. Teresa Jenkins, our very own Historical Society Public Information Officer, had an interesting connection to William Allen White. She wrote, William Allen White and Neil Simon are both Pulitzer Prize winners. Neil Simon and I had a conversation on the phone once when I was working at Topeka Civic Theater. Imagine my surprise when I picked up the phone and said, this is Teresa, and the voice on the other end said, yes, Teresa, this is Neil Simon. Just as if the voice were saying, yes, Teresa, this is your Uncle Steve. I was speechless for a few seconds. 
That's pretty impressive to be connected to William Ella White through Neil Simon. Pretty cool. That's pretty, pretty good. Cool. Yeah, very good. Okay, Blair, can you beat that? Uh, I don't know if I can beat it. I can sort of do something here anyway. Because <laughs> now it's your turn. We've each been taking turns connecting ourselves, and now you're going to give us your connection. Blair Tarr. I, I've, I've been very impressed. I wish I could say somebody after hearing the uh, Eisenhower car washer that I had somebody who was, <laughs> Eisenhower car who was pipe cleaner for Douglas MacArthur or something like that. But... <laughs> Uh, you know, I could claim it as we really wimp out of this too because I was here that day that Bob was here and I actually got the chance to introduce Asner to the crowd that was assembled. So Wow. <laughs> and that <Ed> Asner. <laughs> but but that would be that would be duplicating and that would be wrong. <laughs> Uh, so I, I did have to take a note. I felt sorry for Nikayla because she says she never knows any, meets anybody famous. That's and, true, yeah. Which is odd because if you stay around here long enough, you do meet famous people. <laughs> like Ed Asner. Like Ed Asner. <laughs> awesome. and, and the person I'm going to me- mention, I met just in this the curatorial workroom that it's, is just outside our beautiful recording studio here. Which is my office. Yeah, this is office, <laughs> yes. Uh, this is some time ago that our, our former executive director, Joe Snell, and his wife, Ruth, came out to visit a few people, and they said that there was a friend of theirs they met out in the, the lobby and that she was coming back also, and there was a little delay between her arriving, but... Uh, she finally arrived, and this rather short, petite woman who was dressed down. That wasn't dressed as a slob or anything, but she was dressed <laughs> down for the day, uh, came into the room and sort of had to do a double take because the woman happened to be one of our United States senators at the time, Nancy Landon Kassebaum. Wow. Came in here. Came in here, yes. Now, that wasn't wow. ter- in some ways, it wasn't terribly unusual. She always did buy things at her gift store whenever she was in town. So, so she was just visiting the She was just visiting. Day. She ran into Joe and Ruth, and they knew them, and they came back. And cool. there was made a little talk for a little while with some of the staff back here. So the connection there is her father, of course, was Governor Alf Landon, mm-hmm. the governor in the 30s, 1936 presidential candidate, and Theodore Roosevelt Republican, just like William Allen White was. And obviously they had to do a little work together from time to time. And I think Landon was one of the honorary pallbearers at William Allen White's funeral. Really? Well, I think all former governors actually were honorary pallbearers. But anyway, we go from Kassebaum to her father to William Allen White. Wow. Well done. Everybody knows a celebrity. <laughs> I'm going to start hanging out in the hallway more often. <laughs> All right. And actually, well, Kassabon may have met, is old enough that she may have met WAW at some true. point, too. So I wonder if she met William Lindsay. Probably did at some point, I would think. Yeah. Okay, so if you, the uh, listening public, if you have a connection um, between yourself and William Allen White, or if you know of a connection between the world-famous <laughs> Senator Mike Gravel, Gravel and William Allen White, let us know. Send your solutions to podcast at kshs.org. That is podcast with an S. That concludes episode 47, Quadruple Constitutions. Come back in two weeks when we examine an office chair used by Topeka's first black mayor. Puffy and covered with leather, this chair was awfully comfortable. Maybe a little too comfortable. Find out why the mayor was put in the hot seat for purchasing this chair. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories.